Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University, and I am the host of the Guidelines podcast. My co-host tonight is Dr. Carlos Alvarez, uh, PGY6 at University of Nebraska. Tonight, our topic is the 2022 Guideline for the Management of Patients with Spontaneous Intracerebral Hemorrhage, a guideline from the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. Our guest tonight is uh, Dr. Jay Mako. I'm going to let him introduce himself in uh, just a second. He's going to uh, speak to the topic uh, that we introduced and uh, explain to us a lot of what the authors uh, found in the process of their research. I will say at the get-go, this is probably the longest uh, paper that we've attempted to tackle um, with a guidelines podcast. And for those of you that are reading along with us at home, we are going to uh, most likely focus our discussion tonight on, on the surgical components of the paper. We may get into some of the invasive monitoring section, uh, but I'll leave that those decisions largely to Dr. Mako. So Jay, go right ahead. Sure. Thank you, Brad. Uh, my name is uh, Jay Mako. I am the uh, Calvin Post professor and uh, senior vice chair at Mount Sinai in New York City. I'm a cerebrovascular neurosurgeon, um, perform both open vascular and endovascular uh, surgery. And I do have a special interest in intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, we've uh, pioneered a intracerebral hemorrhage uh, center of excellence here. And I've been working very hard to sort of advance the field with uh, minimal invasive therapies uh, for ICH. Uh, as a result of publishing on that stuff, I was honored to be invited to be part of the writing group for the American Heart and Stroke Association's Guidelines for Spontaneous Intracerebral Hemorrhage Management, and uh, that is the foundation for coming to this uh, podcast. I think when discussing um, ICH, particularly to uh, neurosurgical audience, uh, I think certainly we need to you know begin the conversation around. Uh, surgical management of ICH and, and where the data stands. And there were some meaningful changes to the guidelines this past uh, year with this update, uh, updated information. Many of you may know that there were some large randomized trials called STITCH1 and STITCH2 uh, that showed no evidence of harm, but failed to show a clear benefit uh, for performing a craniotomy for intracerebral hemorrhage evacuation. Um, and as a result, in a large part, surgery for intracerebral hemorrhage has uh, not been something that's pursued or often not even considered uh, a neurosurgical disease by many, but the data continues to grow. And so there were some interesting takeaways from a review of the literature around this topic. First, we can start with the easy thing which is posterior fossa hemorrhage. Uh, if you have a hemorrhage in the cerebellum, 
the prior guidelines recommended uh, rapid evacuation if the patient was suffering neurologic deterioration, brain stem compression, or hydrocephalus. Um, additionally, uh, the recommendation has expanded that there's data that suggests that evacuation does benefit patients uh, even without significant deterioration, but with a clot size of greater than 15 milliliters or 15 cc's. Um, and so sort of a call to be somewhat more aggressive in uh, decompressing patients with posterior fossa hemorrhage. And uh, so I think that's an important part of the conversation. Uh, in general, in the past, that's been really the only guideline recommendation that's pushed towards surgery uh, because of the lack of benefit in these stitch trials. However, in the interim time since the last guideline, uh, there's been a lot of literature published out of Asia, as well as uh, the MISTI um, trial, MISTI-3. Uh, which evaluated minimally invasive approaches. And, and in fact, if you look at those minimally invasive uh, data, there is a strong signal or suggestion that there's value there. In terms of how the guideline itself came out, uh, we, we were able to say based on the data that was in the prospective randomized trial of MISTI, that minimally invasive approaches do demonstrate reductions in mortality. So although MISTI failed to show benefit in clinical outcome, uh, they were able to show reduction in mortality. And so that is something to consider. Interestingly, one of the other things that were discussed in terms of knowledge gap and potential things to be worked out is it is, it is very unclear right now what the meaning and value of timing of surgery is. Uh, when you review the literature that's been done to date, the very significant majority of it is quite delayed. However, there are two surgical trials, one that shows a benefit in mortality, one that shows an actual benefit in outcome, randomized trials, though they're relatively small. Um, but both of those required surgery to be performed, one of them less than 12 hours from onset and one of them less than eight hours from onset. Um, animal data, uh, strongly suggests that earlier surgery is beneficial as well. So that is uh, one of the future questions um, or what we call knowledge gaps, if you read the guideline, uh, that needs to be learned about and addressed is what is the role of timing for surgery for with intracerebral hemorrhage for patients with spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage? Um, so that's kind of the big takeaways in regards to surgery and the performance of surgery and the considerations of whether one wants to do surgery for spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Oh, that was a great uh, summation. Um, I, you know, I'm interested to hear, you, you said before, you know, the stitch one, stitch two trial, no benefit, but then the data continued to grow. Why, why do you think that it, why, you know, when these, when big trials come out and they, they tend to, they, and they, if they didn't show something, you know, in favor of surgery, why did surgical data keep coming out? It's a great question, Brad. And I think the reason that is, is because if we weren't a tenacious bunch as uh, surgeons and vascular neurologists and physicians as a field, then we would still be putting leeches on people's backs. 
And the reality is, is that ICH is a devastating disease, right? Mortality estimates uh, as high as 40 and 50% at one month. Um, when faced with this disease, it absolutely devastates the patients that suffer it. How do we just sit back and say, well, that's all we got. Uh, too bad there was a randomized trial that doesn't show benefit. And so certainly I'm one of those who uh, has a hard time taking uh, failure as an answer. Uh, and so we keep working and we keep trying to figure things out. Uh, how do we do it better? You know, there was a time when, you know, the only way to treat an aneurysm was with a silver stone clamp. And then there was a time when the only way to treat it was to try to wrap it with some sort of cotton. Eventually we got to, you know, modern microsurgery and microsurgical clips, and then we got to endovascular approaches. And all of those things are due to people saying, hey, there's got to be something we can do better. There's got to be a way we can help these patients. And, and for me, I think ICH is a, is a perfect example of that kind of a population. And so while you know, traditional large craniotomy that's performed in a semi-delayed fashion is not beneficial, there are people like myself and others who say, well, what if we do it with minimally invasive surgery? Or what if we do it endoscopically? Or what if we treat the ICHs rapidly, get the it makes sense, right? Just like with ischemic stroke, if you can relieve, or just like with an acute subdural, right? We don't sit on an acute subdural and take it out a few days later. Um, the quicker you can take the pressure off the brain, likely the more benefit the patient experiences. So it, it is a little bit of a, um, a funny question, right? With negative evidence, why do we keep seeing the data develop? Uh, and, and it's a great point, but I think it's happening because there are a lot of us that believe there's got to be something we can offer this patient population that's better than just saying, really sorry, tough luck, and that's about it. So that's that's why I think you still see this progress happening. Yeah. What, what um, you, you mentioned uh, when you were kind of going through maybe some of the subsections in terms of time of surgery and, and anatomy, you mentioned posterior fossa. We're were any other anatomic compartments or locations, you know, analyzed separately in any of the work you found, you know, was frontal lobe different than temporal lobe, things like that? So uh, not the detail of frontal and temporal lobe. However, there has been a lot of work and subset analysis on the data that's been completed as well as data that's ongoing that suggests that overall, the strongest signal for benefit is probably in low bar ICH rather than deep ICH. If you go through the literature, if it's, you know, thalamic bleeds, obviously midbrain bleeds and, and brainstem bleeds are, are catastrophic. Um, thalamic bleeds tend to have extremely poor outcomes. Now, whether or not there's a signal there for benefit is still unknown, but overall, uh, that's a tough population. Um, and then when you look at the surgical evacuation results for deep versus superficial or low bar versus basal ganglia, uh, you tend to see the low bar um, and superficial bleeds having a signal for better outcome. Uh, so that is certainly something to consider. You know, that said, my personal experience with endoscopic ICH evacuation, um, when you see you know, a certain class of basal ganglia hemorrhage, you know, extreme capsule or lateral hemorrhages, 
those patients can have some pretty dramatic uh, improvements. So these are all things we still need to figure out. I certainly wouldn't write off any population right now. Talk to me about, tell it to me a different way. Let's let's say like run run through a case with me of a do and a don't do surgery, kind of from your standpoint, based on the guidelines. Well, so here's the great thing about these guidelines. They don't, they definitely tell you the do, but they can't tell you the don't. So gotcha. I'll give you an example. Um, if a patient comes in with a deteriorated mental status and a 20 cc left cerebellar ICH, that patient needs to be taken to surgery immediately and urgently. And frankly, it does not matter if they have signs of brainstem compression and, you know, cranial nerve deficits or, or even a, you know, quote unquote, brain exam, if that's an urgent presentation, that patient should be taken for decompression and can likely potentially have a dramatic improvement. Now, where it gets questionable is that there isn't a definitive answer as to do or don't, because remember, the trials that have failed to show benefit have not shown harm, right? Mm, so right. there's, so there's this question of, is it worth doing it? And that's a question that's unclear. And, and one of the things that gets emphasized a lot in the guidelines is shared decision-making. So you really have to have shared decision-making with the family. What was the patient's quality of life? What kind of life would they want after, right? Um, and therefore, how can you affect the outcome? And you know, we do have evidence now that using minimally invasive approaches to treat ICH does reduce mortality. So if the patient's opinion or patient's family's opinion is this person chooses life, even with disability over anything else, then that's probably a do. You should do something because the evidence shows that. Um, you know, if the question is, well, doc, am I going to be better off? Am I going to be more functional if I have the surgery? Uh, that question is not yet answered. You know, there's something else that we definitely need to talk about in the context of ICH, and that's the ENRICH trial. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with it, but this is a trial of a minimally invasive craniotomy uh, for ICH. It uses the brain path system, and that trial completed uh, about six months ago. I know that they just did the last of their patient enrollments, um, and hopefully we'll get the results of that trial at, uh, in about a month or so, or certainly sometime soon thereafter. I know that's a Herculean feat, but that's a trial of uh, something like 300 patients that were randomized to treatment with this brain path system or not. And that could very well change our perception and give us new information on, on timing of surgery or approach for surgery. Uh, in fact, in that uh, study, surgery was required within 24 hours. So there's a very real possibility we'll be able to at least get some insight around timing. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, and those were great explanations. The, the what you We've talked about timing a little bit. So can you maybe expand on that? I'm, I'm surprised to hear that some of the timeframes that we discuss are 24 hours. Why, why, why aren't these all treated like epidurals and, you know, you should go straight to the OR? You're, you, <laughs> you're preaching to the converted. I strongly think that that is the direction we need to go. Many years ago, it's kind of interesting the way things happen. Many years ago, there was a very small randomized trial of 
urgent management of ICH or bringing the patients acutely for evacuation. Um, and that trial, the first author was Morgan Stern. And that trial was halted after 11 patients because the surgical patients had a high rebleed rate. And when they rebled, they died. Oh. And as a result, yeah. And so that very small trial and very small experience created a tradition of fear of taking these patients acutely and a need to do a stability scan and ensure that it's not growing and so forth and so on. The reality is one of the greatest benefits of surgery is that the blood can't expand because you're getting it out and you're coagulating whatever the problem is. And so I think that as our technology and techniques have gotten a lot better, uh, I do believe that this is going to be like emergent epidurals or, or severe acute subdurals where we do take them right away. Um, but that's yet to be shown. You know, I was just at the STAIR meeting about two weeks ago with uh, Jim Grotta, who was very much involved in that trial, that original trial way back when. And he even said it really wasn't a fair assessment because it was not it was not in an era and the participants were not particularly enthused to be a part of it. Um, not the patients, the surgeons. <laughs> and so uh, there, there probably is a need for us to figure out how to treat these patients earlier and more acutely. Great. Well, I do want to give our uh, res my resident uh, co-host an opportunity to ask some questions. So uh, uh, Carlos. Sure. I have a, a couple of questions. Does the, um, classic ICH score uh, factor into your decision-making when you're counseling patients on uh, whether uh, they should undergo minimally invasive evacuation of a, of a hematoma? It does, but it might be in a way that's different than what you think. Because when I present a patient with like a hemp pill or, or some predictive scale, the reality is, is that the higher the scale, the worse the likely outcome, the more willing patients usually are to want to try surgery, right? The patient that in my mind is difficult to decide on is the patient who you look at and says, well, you know what? They very well could get through this okay. They're going to be plegic for a while, but the blood will resolve. They'll do rehab. And in you know three months, they're going to be doing better. That patient's the, the harder one to present and for the patients to decide. Uh, but the patient who has a massive 80cc, 90cc hemorrhage that is clearly going to swell and, and have a devastated outcome, those are the patients that often families are like, well, let's give it a shot. Uh, so it's interesting. It's a little bit counterintuitive. I have one more question. As somebody who's going to be dealing with this, maybe out in the community, maybe in an academic center, but probably not in a center that's involved in a trial. Um, do you have any advice on how to approach these when you're deciding between um, a minimally invasive catheter approach versus a brain path approach? Uh, that's a great question. Um, obviously, with the MISTI data, we have strong data uh, around the catheter approach. We know, unfortunately, that it didn't improve overall outcome, although it did improve uh, mortality. So, you know, if that's a, a consideration for you, that's a way to go. Uh, again, I'm, I'm a little surgically minded, and I believe that there's enough evidence and data suggestive there that uh, taking more surgical approaches uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know what, Carlos, this is where we get into what we call the art of medicine. 
the the one thing you'll you'll definitely take away from these guidelines is there's a lot we still need to learn and so with what we have uh there's a lot of room for the physician to decide what their what they think is best engage in shared decision making with the patient and their family to try to do what they think the patient would want best and then move forward you know i've, I've one question you know we've talked about some of the different variables that we use or, or that appear in the evidence what study is needed at this point? If you could, if we're going to run, you know, the next clinical trial on this topic, what, what, what would you, how would you design that? I would love to take a rigid and systematic approach to figuring out a lot of these variables before we go into a quote unquote pivotal or, you know, definitive randomized trial. So, you know, we'll see if Enrich answers that question anyways, but I believe we should be looking at what are the safety parameters, how early can we do surgery, how effectively can we do early surgery, and if we figure that out, maybe there's a sweet spot, maybe, you know, if you take them right away, it is a little hard, but maybe with modern techniques, it's, it's better to take them immediately, you know, rush them into the OR, just like a, an epidural. I think we should figure that out before we, I don't think we should just keep doing randomized trial after randomized trial after randomized trial. So that's, that's my bias. I think we need to start doing some really rigorous work to figure out the ideal patient population and then moving forward. As we're running a little out of time. So I do want to ask one more question though. I, I did notice, I'm sure the listeners noticed that this was a guideline from the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. So I do want to uh, tell our listeners that this guideline was reviewed for evidence-based integrity and endorsed by the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and Congress of Neurological Surgeons. So we, our group as neurosurgeons has endorsed this. Um, was the process in your view or in your mind, was it different than a, than a kind of a typical neurosurgery guidelines endeavor or... Can you compare and contrast them at all? Should we think any differently? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, this guideline is less, you know, as we mentioned, it's we've been discussing the surgical component, but it's broad around all of the aspects of ICH diagnosis, management, care, rehabilitation, and all the rest. So there was something valuable by having a broad stakeholder group engaged. I mean, I do think it's important to realize that the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons in Congress both have writing group representatives on this uh, document, myself and Dr. Bill Mack, uh, as examples uh, from USC, who I know you know, Brad. And um, also, uh, you know, they, they go, as you mentioned, it goes back to NSCNS to review and edit. And they don't just say, hey, this is okay. It's not just a thumbs up or thumbs down, but there's actually detailed feedback. Uh, I will tell you, it is a very significant undertaking. You know, I don't know if we went over 100 hours, but I would guess that we did in group calls going over everyone's sections and editing them. So it's relatively laborious, but the fact that it's multi-specialty, I do think brings some value to it. I think I think it's important for the neurosurgical community to create clear guidelines around the things that are important to us, uh, but it's also important for us to work with, with other specialties in, in a similar manner. Great. Well, uh, Jay, what did we leave out? Uh, what what information should we have asked that you want to tell us? You know, I think we hit a lot of the highlights and the things that this group needs to take at home. 
you know, often, I guess one of the other things that comes up is what do you do acutely with patients' blood pressure right after they present? Uh, the truth is the data is all over the place. What we know for sure is lowering it aggressively is not beneficial. So keeping it relatively steady and avoiding extremes of hypertension. I know that sounds wishy-washy, but that's about as good as we have from the data. Aside from that, you know, on a personal bias, I would recommend to everyone, you know, be familiar with it and uh, let's see if we can help these patients. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I do want to, you know, for the for our read or our listeners, there are a number of sections within this uh, guideline that touch on things from, you know, pre-hospital care to um, seizure management. So similar to the to uh, some of the other uh, medication recommendations, um, for example, not to use anti-epileptics unless there's uh, either EEG or clinical evidence of seizures. There's other types of recommendations along those lines and along the ICU care and the non-invasive monitoring. So there's a, a, a huge amount of information and we really just touched on the surgical aspect of it for the purposes of uh, this podcast. So uh, with that, uh, thank you very much to our guests for joining us. I also want to thank our uh, Dr. Mako and uh, in abstention, Dr. Mack, for their uh, efforts uh, on this guidelines project. I'm uh, quite certain it was an immense amount of work, but this is, uh, like I said, this is a wealth of information and is a handy reference for uh, any uh, neurosurgeon. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Mako for his participation uh, in the podcast and Dr. Alvarez for joining me as co-host. For our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated uh, guidelines topics and podcasts. Thank you to everybody and uh, have a great night.